take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You know, a lot of the time I kind of come on here and I start bitching about the internet and how bad it is, but it allows me to meet cool people like my good friend Greg here. Welcome. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks Thank, for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Um, we connected on Twitter, the power of Twitter, and uh, I know there's kind of like a big mental health community on, on Twitter especially, and mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of how we found each other. Um, and you came to me with quite the story, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think we should just get right into it. Um Take me to the beginning of it, uh, and and don't leave any detail unturned. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, so uh, I work for an organization called Ottawa Carlton Life Skills. Uh, it's based here in Ottawa, and uh, we do developmental services work. So we're a non-for-profit organization, and I've been with them for uh, about eight and a half years now. And back on um, May the 5th, 2012, Um, I was working um, at my regular home. So we take care of adults with uh, severe developmental and physical disabilities. And uh, I was dropping off one of our residents at a family member's house. And I was coming back down. uh, I was driving our agency vehicle. So we drive like a paratranspo style bus. And I was driving back to uh, the group home when I pulled up to a stoplight. And... I was looking at the cars behind me because these buses are huge, so sometimes mm-hmm. they can't see the lights behind us. And uh, I was looking up at uh, the rearview mirror and to make sure the cars behind me had stopped. And I heard this loud bang. So uh, my eyes shot forward and I saw two people flying through the air. And uh, I just witnessed a uh, minivan hit a motorcycle. In front oh my of me. God. So <laughs> um, it was a man and his wife. Uh, that were uh, heading down the same, uh, it was Sailoron, right in front of the Sailoron Center. And uh, um, I got out of the car. I'm a trained paramedic, so that's what I went to school for. Okay. And immediately started running towards uh, the accident. And uh, the the man, uh, during the accident, the impact was so hard that he was wearing one of those bucket-style helmets, and it came right off. Um, So... I ran and did my best to help him, but uh, I couldn't. And he ended up passing away while I was working on him. And it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. So picture Sailor on Boulevard on a good day. Yeah. Traffic's pretty brutal. So um, help didn't come fast enough. But the biggest problem was, and I think the hardest part of that situation for me, was that I knew what needed to be done. And uh, so... He was quite a large man. He was, and nobody can see me right now, but I'm about five foot six. I weigh like 140 pounds, but um, he was quite a bit larger. He was probably closer to 260, I'd say. Um, and he had landed face down. And when uh, he had stopped breathing, I knew that I needed to roll him over. But because of the mechanism of the injury and like the accident, I also knew that I needed to protect his spine as best as I could um, but I couldn't do it alone so it was like I said it was three o'clock on St. Laurent Boulevard and um, there was a lot of people that were around and nobody would help mm. so I was I was I was asking people for help and uh, a lot of people were on their phones and a lot of people were out of their cars and kind of coming over to where the accident site was but um, 
at at the time I didn't really understand why nobody was helping. Like I was, I was yelling instructions. The, uh, the wife was conscious the whole time. Um, she had done almost like a forward flip and landed, uh, like in a seated position and had hit herself in the face with her own knees. She was hurt beyond that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but she was awake the whole time. And the thing that was really difficult for me to deal with, um, was that she was facing us. So she was seeing everything that I was doing with, uh, to, to help her husband. And at the time I didn't know their relationship because you don't have time to figure that stuff out. I just assumed. So I was asking people to even, if they wouldn't help me with him, at least move her out of the way or turn her. So she didn't need to see this because I knew that I needed to roll him over at some point and I didn't know what that was going to look like. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, uh, nobody was helping and at this point he had stopped breathing and I went, I did my best to get my arms under him and do, uh, like a modified spinal turnover, um, which basically is a way that a single person can do a rollover of somebody that needs to have CPR, um, while protecting their spine in the best possible way that they can. Uh, it's really difficult to do, but, um, I, I got to a point where I knew that I couldn't waste any more time. So... What ended up happening was that because I'm so much smaller, uh, to get under him, I had to really work my arm under, and I ended up I ended up cutting myself all over my arms with pieces of glass and stuff like that. So, um, as I was struggling to do that, someone finally ran out of the crowd and grabbed him by his belt loop and helped me roll him over. So I got him rolled over, and I was still protecting his spine and his head at this point. When I rolled him over, I was able to see the extent of his injuries. Um, but I was also able to see that like he, he needed immediate CPR and I went to give this guy that had run out of the crowd, uh, instructions on what we do next. And, uh, unfortunately he ran away. So I, I was back to having no one. Mm. So, um, I could hear the sirens coming at this point, um, down Saint Laurent. They were coming from, uh, the East and, uh, I just remember thinking like they can't get here soon enough and uh eventually a second person ran out of the crowd and it was right before the ambulance pulled up and uh he was an off-duty paramedic so he started doing compressions and i was still holding the head um and unfortunately i got a lot of blood on me and because i was already cut um i would i had my blood and his blood mixed together and uh the thing that killed me the most was that at this point still no one had helped his wife so, um, because she was awake and alert, um, she was, she was in shock. Like she wasn't responding to any of my questions or anything like that. Cause I was trying to get information from her, including, are you hurt anything? Um, so no one had, had ever moved his wife. So, um, when the paramedics finally arrived, two came to us, two went to her and, uh, the screaming and, um, <clears throat> the upset, um, was something that will live with me forever. And I, I wasn't supposed to be there mm -hmm. in that moment. Like the only reason why I was, was because I was at work and I had just dropped one of our guys off. So, um, before reporters or media, anything like that got there, um, the police had brought me back to our agency vehicle, um, which like I said, was a big pair of transfer, So we both just got into the back and, uh, I filled out a report, um, so the gentleman's name was Mike Jeffries. He was the one that was killed in the motorcycle accident. And uh, his wife survived. Um, she had multi-system trauma, but um, was awake the whole time. Um, so 
I had uh, gone back to the bus. We were filling out reports and everything like that. And the the police officer said, um, is that yours or is it his? And I was still kind of in kind of shock. Like I'd, I'd seen my share of trauma, mm-hmm. um, just doing ride-alongs in school and um, believe it or not, even being a lifeguard with the city of Ottawa. Like you see enough accidents to, to know how to navigate a situation like that. But I'd never really seen violence like that sudden and that uh, impactful mm-hmm. um, firsthand. So uh, I was in shock from that. And when he said that, I said, I don't know what you mean. He's like, you're covered in blood. And I looked down and I remember um, a fireman had come over and given me this uh, solution that they used to, to clean their hands and stuff, disinfect and clean your hands. Uh, but the blood kept coming. So that was when we found out that it was mine and his. So um, the paramedics that were there thought the best thing to do would be to take me right away to the hospital and just have um, my blood tested and decide whether or not I wanted to do any kind of um, like medication treatment just to make sure that uh, if there was any um, anti-antigens or anything in his blood that mm-hmm. I wouldn't get it as well. But we needed to move fast, so they took me to the Queensway Carlton, and uh, I did that. So um, the reason why that part of the story is relevant and the reason why I said before media got there was that um, once media arrived on scene, um, they interviewed the off-duty paramedic and they talked to him about the situation and uh, they credited him for at least restarting the heart. Like they used a defibrillator and they were able to restart the heart, but um, unfortunately the gentleman still passed away on the way to the hospital. Never regained consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, And I'll touch back on the 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 media side of the story in a bit but um so i my work at the time i had to call them and let them know that i obviously wasn't coming back to my shift and told them what happened and they got me to fill out an incident report and things like that so this was back in 2012 Um, at the time there was nothing in place for um any kind of mental injuries um and there certainly wasn't any kind of education or anything like that so um i took i think two days off work and uh, went, just stayed at home and just kind of like digested what had happened, digested what I saw, and uh, decided that the best thing that I could do was, um, so as it turned out, everything was fine with the blood. Like I had mm-hmm. some, I have some cuts and I still have scars on my arms from the cuts, but they were fine. Physically, I was fine. And I didn't really know what state I was in because I never really allowed myself a second to kind of think about that it was more like i'm physically okay i want to go back to work and um i mentioned that i work in disability services so when i went back to work there's a lot of screaming in the home and stuff like that and after about a week um the screaming was starting to really get to me and it was only certain people like only certain like a certain pitch uh would really bother me but describe sorry i'll I'll cut you off because i know you've been talking for (laughs) quite a while um that you you know wet your whistle a little bit but tell me what it was like you know help paint a picture of when you say it bothered you yeah what does that look like or what did that look like to you what did that feel like yeah so um at the time like I have to look back on it and think about like what it felt like because at the time all I was feeling was like immediate anger like a lot of like anger and um not like violence or like outburst or like like I'd lose control of my emotions but it would be like um, 
I would hear a scream and like I said it it had to be a certain pitch it was like um like it, if it's a female scream it can be like kind of low but it's a higher pitch scream that really sets me off and when I would hear that it would be like the type of anger and frustration you feel when you stub your toe like you know that like sudden like burst of it's just it just comes out it's like uncontrollable you mm-hmm. have to you have to do something you have to grab your toe or you have to like whatever you swear you mm-hmm. yell so it would feel like that as soon as i started hearing that scream but the thing was is that it was because of the line of work that i'm in it can be constant it can be a full day ordeal if they're having a bad day and um what was happening was that i would recognize that i was getting angry like that and i would just i'd try and keep myself busy and i'd try and keep myself not thinking about it or maybe get to a different part of the house where i wasn't hearing it as loud um but by me doing that it was exhausting me so by the end of the day what would happen is i'd be like i can't do this again tomorrow and i'd be up all night thinking about like can i go to work i really need to go to work because i need to pay bills Mm -hmm. but if i go to work am i going to be able to do that and if that screaming starts again am i going to be able to control that that anger like that frustration and i never talked to anybody about it um did you have like so were you familiar with like mental health or like mental illnesses like any like were you, did you have any symptoms beforehand before this incident um or like was this all of a sudden like just a brand new world it it wasn't a brand new world like i i had had um panic attacks in the past okay. and i'd had um anxiety in the past usually like in a social setting um but the um what i was feeling in this moment and like i said this is about a week after the accident happened at this point where it finally started kind of sinking in and i was really feeling this mm-hmm. so what i really when i really started to notice that something was wrong was that I started going home and uh, like I said I'd I'd start debating on whether or not I could do this again tomorrow like if I could hear that again tomorrow and it would start keeping me up at night and that's when um, like about a week maybe a week and a half later the nightmare started so what was happening Mm. was is that I'd hear this screaming all day at work and then I'd go home and I'd be exhausted from just kind of like running from those uh, like demons I guess right so I go home I'd be exhausted I go to sleep and the screaming would bring me right back to the the accident scene and what would happen is is that it was almost like I was living like a groundhog day type scenario where I'd pull up in the van I'd look in the rearview mirror I'd hear the bang I'd see the people I'd start working no one would help and I'd even if I woke up I wouldn't be able to go back to sleep until I finished the scenario like it had to play out so like I'd be sitting up in my bed thinking okay this is what I should have done next this is what I immediately should have done I shouldn't have waited for anybody I should have just rolled him over I should have got up spun his wife around and then came back and but I was so preoccupied with the idea that something might have been wrong with his spine and Mm -hmm. that if I could help him or if I could save him that that he would be there'd be long-term damages and whether or not I'd be liable for that like things like that were going through my mind and um it started becoming an obsession where I was uh, almost every night I'd be up from uh, like I'd fall asleep and I might sleep for an hour or two and then I'd wake up and I'd have to play out that scenario and then I would start thinking about did I do enough did I do it right did I make the wrong decision um, 
how's his wife? Like, what is she thinking? Does she even know who I am? Or like, if she does, what does she remember? Like, was I the guy that failed them? Or am I the guy that tried to help out of a crowd of people that wouldn't? So um, it became this obsession where I had to play out the scenario all the time. And as I played it out, I started feeling more and more immense feelings of guilt. And I couldn't couldn't sleep. So I just stopped sleeping. And um, if I had went to work, um, I, I tried talking to some people about it. And I think that was my first big mistake was that the first person I ever really opened up to about it, it was a, a friend of mine um, that we were at a party and we were having a drink and he had asked me about the accident. And he's like, how are you feeling? And I just said, I started crying. And um, I said, like, he, I did everything that I could and no one would help me. Is it some? Is it something? Is there something wrong with me? Like, why would nobody come out? Like, was am I? Was I yelling too much? Was I? Were people afraid? Did they know what was going to happen to me, and they didn't want that to happen to them? And uh, I just remember crying, and he was like, "Man, let's let's just drink this away, and never mm-hmm. talk about it again. Like, you're going to be fine. Let's just don't even think about it. Have another drink. Let's go outside until you calm down, and then." And I just, I went home because um, I couldn't go back into the party at that point. And um, I started feeling like I couldn't talk to anyone about it because I didn't, I don't think that anybody really understood the impact that I had or that it had on me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, and going back to that, the media part where I had been taken away before media had arrived. Um, not like I'd want to talk to anybody, but uh, at another party, um, it had come up again and someone was just asking, cause at this point it had costed me uh, a relationship that I was in. So I was seeing somebody for about six months or eight months and my behavior became so erratic and I was not sleeping that it became detrimental to the relationship. I had a short fuse. I was yelling a lot. I was getting stressed and it ended up causing me this relationship that I was in. So, um, that came up at a party and um, as I was explaining the situation and the scenario and how it impacted me and stuff like that, somebody at the party said, well, were you even there? Like, did it actually really happen or did you just see it? And you're, you're giving it the spin because the media interviewed the guy that was part of the rescue. And for me at that point, I was like, I don't know if I can ever talk to anybody in this circle of friends that I'm in, um, at that time if I can talk to any of these people about it because either they don't believe me or they don't understand it at this mm-hmm. point. And rumors started that I wasn't even there. So thankfully the people that I work with, um, they knew I was there because they had to come and pick me up. They had to bring me a change of clothes. They had to get that agency vehicle, which was in all the newscasts. Um, when all the media did arrive, the van was left there. They took me to the hospital in an ambulance. Um, so I, uh, my first mistake that I ever made was not going to a doctor first and talking to just a friend and Mm -hmm. a friend that's not qualified to give advice, a friend that's not, um, maybe not educated on how to handle a situation like that. And they took the only way out that they knew, which was let's bury this. Mm -hmm. You're going to be fine. Man up. And for those that couldn't see quotation marks, man up. Um, well, I think in 2012, you know, I think on more maybe a medical side, of course, uh, people understood what PTSD is and trauma. And, mm-hmm. But like if you just ask the regular person, like it, 
like this whole thing about mental health and, and mental illnesses really only started to take off in, in at least normal conversation, like 2014, 2015, maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah. 2012 is when, like, I started, like, you know, medication and, and on my journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, like, I say the same boat, like, I didn't understand what was happening to me because no one talked about it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even know to go to anybody because I didn't recognize really anything was wrong. I was just in the moment, mm-hmm. felt like shit. You yeah. know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, to bring that up at a party with like regular day people who aren't around it on a day-to-day life through the profession back then, especially that, you know, yeah, of course you're going to want to shut down after that because no one's probably ever heard anything like this before. Yeah. And like at the time we were young, like 20, 2012, I would have been, um, that was what, seven years ago. So I would have been 28. And, um, like I said, that was my, my biggest mistake because what ended up happening was after, um, after I'd lost that relationship and after I'd had those two failed conversations with like people that aren't qualified to have that kind of mm-hmm. conversation at a time where it wasn't even really a hot topic, um, I decided that nothing was actually wrong and that what I was feeling was just me being a baby about it. And I never sought any help at all for the first four years uh, after that. Wow. So, um, what ended up happening was is that obviously those feelings that I was having at work continued because those symptoms were never getting away if in, or going away. If anything, they were getting worse. And um, at my worst um, was 2015 to 2016, and I missed uh, 70, 71 days of work over the course of 15 months. And a lot of those days were um, like single occurrences. So it's not like I was taking... A long leave of absence and like really recovering and getting this fixed it was me getting up in the morning having a panic attack I start work at seven in the morning so I'd have a panic attack at six in the morning and I'd call in sick and I'd say I can't come to work today and that happened 71 times during those 15 months and when that happens at work and you're not talking about it to your employer they start questioning whether or not you're suitable for employment with the agency anymore. And they started, um, they put me on review, which they call attendance management. They, they called it at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, what attendance management is, is they sit you down and they say, um, you need to fill out uh, like a doctor's note if you're going to be missing this kind of work or this amount of work. And you need to let us know what we can do to make you better or to make your time here better. And you don't need to disclose what's wrong with you. We just need a doctor's note and you need to tell us how we can accommodate so we can reduce your absences, which is fair. Mm -hmm. However, um, I was manning up, again, quotation marks, and I said, nothing's wrong with me. I'll be fine. I just need some time sometimes. And I I wasn't talking to them about it. So what ended up happening was the, the manager that I had at the time started taking small, like not really... Um, punishable offenses or like offenses that needed to be punished like small mistakes Mm -hmm. and would do full write-ups and uh, reprimands for them so we're a unionized environment and it's basically like a three strike you're out type thing and uh, I was on the verge of losing my job for these small things and I thought that it was um, I felt like I was being harassed and that I just needed some time but at the same time I wasn't disclosing anything so they're like in reality is is that maybe they were trying to find a way to let go of me because I was costing them a lot of money. 
but it's because I wasn't being open about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to them, they you might just be a bad employee or, yeah. like you said, like questioning you want to be there, but internally you're really struggling and, and yeah. not telling them about it. So Yeah, so it was kind of like yeah. a, it was a catch-22 that I'd put myself into. And um, they, so my work gave me this, this functional abilities form and I brought it to my doctor. My doctor um, at this time was treating me for what she believed was a severe anxiety and um, depression. And um, even though she knew the, the occurrence, this is the thing with a GP is that sometimes uh, a GP is like, is okay at a, at a lot of things, right, right? but they don't specialize in one particular thing. So um, at this point, she thought that I was um, being best treated for, for the, this depression and anxiety and uh, said that the functional ability form wasn't really relevant to my type of injury or my type of illness because it was all about what can you lift, what can you bend, how long can you stand for? And um, so she just basically wrote at the bottom after marking all the boxes, like, no, this doesn't affect Greg. No, this doesn't affect Greg. No, this doesn't affect Greg. At the bottom, she just wrote, Greg will sometimes need to leave work or miss work for medical purposes. And um, he might have to do so on short notice. And that was it. And because my work wouldn't take any kind of diagnosis or anything like that, they saw that and just thought, well, we can't take her. This is credible because there's nothing wrong with you. Hmm. So um, we ended up launching an investigation i asked for an investigation to be launched because at this time i had two young kids i had a newborn and a two-year-old and uh, my wife wasn't working so i was our only source of income and this was my full-time job Mm -hmm. so uh, when this investigation started um, management had been asked uh, about my history and past managers and things like that and they all basically said that uh, greg is a good worker but we don't know how honest he's being with his health because he doesn't disclose it and um we've heard rumors but that's all they are at this point until the the doctor can confirm what's wrong but they weren't accepting mm-hmm. like that diagnosis and what sorry what's this time frame so you know the incident happened in 2012 yeah where are we at now on the timeline so this was uh, about four years later i finally started seeking help so we're in like 2016 at this point and wow. i missed um I had missed uh, my 71 days of work at this point, and that's when I was at my worst. Through that time, okay. Through that time. Gotcha. So no, right, like, 25, okay. Yeah, so that's the 71 days was in over the course of um, March 2015 to um, April 2016. So it's like, okay, uh, or sorry, May 2016. So um, it's 15 months and 71 days of work. So we had, I had launched an investigation and uh, the lawyers on their side said that um, there wasn't enough evidence supporting my my claim and uh, um, that we would have to proceed with going to arbitration at this point. So um, arbitration is basically uh, court for a unionized environment. So as we were, dis- we were discussing moving towards the arbitration date, um, arbitration costs a lot of money on both sides, mm-hmm. obviously. And, um, as we would, we would meet about once a month, like my, my employer, my union, myself, and we would be discussing, um, what's come up and like, if there's any way that we can rectify this situation before it goes to arbitration. And, um, at one of them, uh, I had, at this point I had gone to see a specialist and they had filled out the, that functional abilities form a little bit more appropriately and had written down that um, I needed to miss extra work and it was because of a mental health injury that I had suffered. 
And I finally got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress dis- uh, disorder at, um, in 2016. And that's when I finally went to a specialist and finally started getting the help that I needed and the treatment that I needed. Mm-hmm. So that form had been filled out, but um, the, the manager that I had at the time had kept that form and not submitted it to human resources. So my employer didn't know that that form even existed. So oh, when okay. that came up, that's when we finally started realizing that something was actually wrong in, in that, that whole process. And we had missed this giant step and I actually had a legitimate illness that needed to be treated and looked at. Mm-hmm. So um, we ended up settling before arbitration happened and all I asked for was that my record was cleared. So all those, those tiny infractions had been removed and my suspensions had been removed and that I was repaid for any uh, missed time because I was suspended from work um, twice. Um, because of those, like I said, it's like those three strikes you're out. Right. So it could be a minor infraction, but it's still, if you're on step two, that means a three day suspension or whatever it was. So they had done that. And, um, in this process, I had spent so much time with them that we'd been during these meetings that they just said that they were looking to find a way to change the organizational culture. And they wanted to start this committee that would help um, create a more positive work environment for employees. And they had asked me if I'd be interested in joining it. And at this point I was still angry. So I said, no, and I said that I'm not interested. So this committee started and it went for about four months and I got a phone call in October of 2017 saying that they would really appreciate if I even just came into one, saw what it was all about. And if I can come with any kind of idea that would make the workplace better, that they'd want to hear it and they'd want to hear it at a senior management level. And if it, if it made sense, this is something that we could potentially do to improve the culture of our workplace. So for those that are listening that are unfamiliar with workplace culture, it's basically how an employee feels when they're at work mm-hmm. um, and when they feel in the environment. So I went to my first meeting and at that, at that meeting, I brought up that um, I brought up a whole bunch of mental health statistics because at this point I'd spent all that time that we were heading towards arbitration, researching like crazy everything that I could about mental health and its impact and statistics in Canada. So I could use that if we went mm-hmm. to court to mm-hmm. say like I was, I was right taking that time off work and I knew that I couldn't be there and I couldn't be productive and it could be dangerous to myself or the, the people that we take care of if I made a mistake because my mind was elsewhere um, by giving them the wrong medication or whatever. So um, I, I had presented this idea to implement something that's called the National Standard of Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace, which was designed by the Canadian Mental Health Commission or um, Association. And um, they said that they wanted to know more and that they would give me a 15-minute or 20-minute presentation at the senior management meeting uh, in April, but I needed to do all kinds of different things. So this is from October 2017 till April of 2018. I had to complete all these tasks, which was um, talk to our union and make sure that the union was on board with it and that they were okaying it. I had to talk to occupational health and safety and make sure that they understood their role and if we implemented this program. And then I had to find a mentor that would be able to guide us through the process. And they also wanted to know how much it would cost. And I said that uh, at that point I was about 200 hours into my research. And I said that it's going to cost you nothing because the products that I've found are free. The national standard is free and I'm donating my time and I'm going to start doing this as a repayment for the time that I missed by not disclosing my mental health to you years earlier. 
and this is going to be uh, we're going to work with this together and we're going to make something special out of it and they said yeah so I completed all those steps we sat down at the uh, senior management meeting in April and um, in April of 2018 we became Canada's first developmental services agency to implement a mental health program for its employees. So um, what that meant was that there's no, no agency that does what we do in Canada has this same program, um, which is free and it's readily available to anybody to use and implement and research, um, but nobody's using it. So hmm. when, when we signed, we signed something that's called the Declaration of Commitment to the National Standards. So the Canadian Mental Health Association um, now lists us as somebody that's promised that we're going to implement a safe environment for our employees by implementing the national standard. We're going to take care of our employees' mental health. So um, with that, we started um, conducting all these employee surveys and making sure we could figure out what the problem areas were in our agency and trying to figure out how we can address it. So um, there's a survey that you can implement to your employees that allows you to narrow down to these 13 psychological factors, they're called. And out of those 13 factors, there's different frameworks that you can implement to address any problem areas that you have in your agency. So we conducted that survey, found out where our problem areas were, and then got to work on uh, implementing the framework so we can repair the damaged areas. And it also shows you where you excel as well. So you mm -hmm. can take... You can take um, kind of give like the sandwich feedback where you can tell your employees like we're doing really well here maybe in work-life balance or in uh, physical health and safety or uh, engagement employee engagement um, however we're doing really poorly in civilian respect and organizational culture so this is where we're going to work on it and you can get buy-in from employees that way they know how they're doing they know what your plan is to, to mm -hmm. execute a, mm -hmm. a plan and um so we, we launched these services, and um, as we started talking about them um, more and more on social media, and um, our executive director goes to all kinds of um, summits and things like that, and she started talking about it as well. And more and more people got interested in asking us how we did this and how difficult it is to implement. And um, we have started to respond to them by offering the services. So right now, we help agencies... Uh, from all around the world um, via live Facebook sessions and um, just like one-on-one -on -one Skype meetings and things like that, implement their own mental health systems. Hmm. And these products that we use, like I said, they were all free. They're all made by the Canadian Mental Health Association. And they're available to use anywhere in the world. So I've helped people in India. I've helped people in New Zealand. Uh, implement mental health programs for their employees and it's using Canadian content which we're pretty proud of mm -hmm. so um, it's been a wild ride and it <laughs> continues yeah but um, our relationship at work is so much better now and I'm fortunate that we had this visionary of an executive director that just kept pushing that um, that I pursue this project mm -hmm. and I find it I find it special because they took their most their their sickest employee and instead of reprimanding or like taking away their job or um not making them eligible for something as big as this like i could have mentioned this and someone else could have taken that project and ran with it mm -hmm. uh, at the senior level i think it's really uh admirable that 
they that they did that um, because the reason why I wasn't telling my employer about my illness was that I was worried that I would be labeled unfit for advancement. I was worried that I would be an entry-level employee forever. Um, I was worried that it, they would fire me because they'd see me as a, um, a negative impact to the work environment or a crybaby or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent years lying and not seeking help because of these small mistakes. And all I needed to do really to avoid any of this was just have that talk, like have that talk with my, my employer, have that talk with a professional. And those, those mistakes almost cost me everything. They almost cost me my job. They almost cost me my marriage. Um, but thankfully now, um, we're providing this service where we're going out and we're talking about it and we're, we're putting a a face to recovery and a face to Mm -hmm. what, what most people are afraid of. And we're showing them that it's really not that bad. And I'm hoping that in doing so that we, that we inspire other organizations to launch their mental health programs. And we are inspiring um, employees, but men in particular um, to have these conversations with professionals and with their employers and just kind of disclose this information so they can get the help that they need because it doesn't need to be as bad as it is mm-hmm. and uh, seeking help is easily the best thing that I ever did yeah I'm, I'm interested in that because we kind of skipped that part where you went to see the specialist and you got that signed off mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested to know what was that turning point so you resisted this for for four, a long time yeah four years four years and then now you're going through this thing at work and you, yeah. you know you're what was the point where you're like that you decided you needed help and like what happened? So what ended up happening was is that um, by not seeking professional help, I started self-medicating. So um, mm. what what that means is that I would get home at the end of the day and what started with having uh, like it's not uncommon for somebody to get home and have a beer at the end yeah. of the day. But what is uncommon is when that beer turns into six to ten per day. And I would get home from work and I would have a beer, which would turn into another beer. I would be complaining about whatever was happening at work, um, whatever was happening with, with my life, whatever was unfair or I felt was unfair to my wife. And I would have, uh, it got to a point where I was drinking, like I said, between six and 10 beer a night. And um, the, like physically, my body was feeling awful. I put on probably about 40 pounds um, in between 2015 and 2017, uh, when we, when we had our second child. And, um, so at this point I was starting to seek help, um, but I still hadn't seen my specialist and my second daughter had been born. And the, the, while it's a blessing, the terrible part of that is that her, her cry matches that pitch that I can't hear. Mm. So I was hearing it at work. I was coming home. I was drinking. Um, I was a mess um, physically and mentally. And one night I got home from work. I had just finished a 12-hour shift, and it was an awful one. I'd come home, and uh, I I was at a point where, like, it was that need for a drink because it was almost like that first beer kind of like calms you down and you feel a little bit relaxed, but then I needed more. Um, so it got to a point where, um, the best way that I can explain it is, have you ever been stuck in rush hour, Mm. full bladder, you need to pee. And all you can think about is how badly you need to pee. Everything's going to be fine. Once I pee, I just, I need to make it to a bathroom. I need, and you get that like panic and that's Mm -hmm. all you think about. 
that was me with alcohol. Hmm. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. The anxiety wouldn't subside until I had a drink. So I was, I got home, I had my drink, I spilt it, the baby started crying. And um, all I remember is that my wife had the baby. She was on the other side of the, the living room. Our other daughter was asleep. And this, the crying was just so loud that I turned around and I kicked a baby gate that was um, blocking our oldest um, daughter from, it prevented her from coming downstairs. So she was in bed, but I kicked the gate and then I kicked it again and I threw it and it woke up our oldest. It obviously upset my wife and the, the baby. And my wife said to me, she's like, you need help. And it's not the type of help that like a week of off of work is going to give you. It's not the type of help that a good night's sleep is going to give you. It's not the type of help that four more beer is going to give you. If you don't go see a doctor now, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. So that was my turning point. And um, so what I did was at the time, like I said, I was the only one working. So I went to the uh, West End Community Health Center in Canada and they offer free counseling. And uh, that was the first time that I really got an idea that um, something was wrong more than just anxiety and depression, um, which my my GP um, at the time, she thought she was doing me a favor by saying, like, you need to exercise, you need to clean up your diet, um, right. your like BMI is a mess, stuff, yeah. yeah, you need to go for a jog. But it was the type of illness that a jog is not going to fix. Yeah. So um, it hurt I don't want to say downplaying, but maybe I wasn't giving her enough information as well. Um, or she, ne- she didn't think that I was there. Whatever it was, her downplaying m- had me downplay it. So when I finally sat down, and these counselors are, um, they're relatively new. Like when you go to these these uh, free counseling um, places, like a West End Community mm-hmm. Healthcare, um, and, or they're students, and they are really invested in establishing a name for themselves. And they do it for either no to low cost. So the one that I saw, um, they offer three visits. And uh, by the end of the third visit, he was like, you need somebody more than me for this. And like, I can continue to help you, but we need to like make a spin on why you're here. Like um, you said that you were here for anger. So maybe the next three sessions will be the anger and how your wife's reaction to your anger is. And then the three sessions after that, but he's like, I'm at a point now where like you need somebody that can really, really help you and break this down. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, going to see an actual professional and uh, get the counseling that I needed and the guidance that I needed. Um, and she provided me with um, alternatives to um, how I was dealing with my panic attacks and things like that, which was basically self-medicating or I, I felt like I needed alcohol to, to get through it. But she gave me alternatives like breathing techniques and um, EFT, I think it's called, where it's like a tapping um, on certain pressure points, if you've ever heard of that. I've heard of that, yeah. Not referred to as EFT, but yeah, yeah, the tapping. Yeah, so it's, um, uh, and I can't remember the the scientific name for it right now, but um, it was ways that I can kind of calm myself. And it's almost like a a mindfulness exercise where I can kind of just stay in the moment and remove myself from whatever's upsetting me. So a combination of medication... Uh, those techniques and um, just constantly going to my appointments was what really helped. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also helped me build the documentation that I needed to save my job if that was going to be something that continued. So, um, yeah, I'd say that that was, that was 100% my turning point was when my wife mm-hmm. 
and that that whole incident like i knew a hundred percent that i was in the wrong the moment that i did that and instantly felt regret and instantly knew that i needed help but um i didn't know where to go and i didn't know Mm -hmm. who to ask and then i didn't know how i was going to do it um but uh so yeah that was um if you don't mind me asking feel free not to answer but like when you you know got together with your girlfriend who turned into your wife like did you like open up to her about all this like she knew kind of the background of maybe why you're kind of like doing that type of stuff yeah so funny enough um our first date ever it came up Mm. so um not necessarily in um that kind of because at this point I still wasn't talking to anybody like we met in um August of 2012 so it was like four months after the accident oh wow okay and um we uh we sat down I don't even know how it came up but we talked about the accident we talked about the impact that it had on me and um she just said that like for her in that moment she was like this is my person and uh we've been together ever since but uh I was pretty open with it and I don't think that um at it got really bad in 2013 so probably about a year later that's when I was starting to miss a lot of work Mm -hmm. but not as much as I did in 2015 2016 so she saw how not getting help took its took its toll on me year after year and how how bad I was getting so like I said I put on like 40 pounds um I was up to 190 at one point um and so she saw the physical effects and knew that I was getting up at night but um I always told her that it was heartburn so she kind of contributed that to my poor diet and the alcohol consumption. And she was like, okay, well, you come to bed whenever you're ready and maybe have some Tums or whatever. But what was really happening was is that I'd be having those nightmares again or I'd be having an anxiety attack or a panic attack. And um, I'd go downstairs and I'd pace by myself. I never wanted to be a burden and like tell her about that, the mental portion of what was mm-hmm. wrong. Because um, like obviously the scars, you can see the physical um, with what's, what's wrong or what happened to me during that accident, but the mental part is invisible. And unless you're talking about it, no one will ever know. Mm-hmm. So um, I lied to her about it. And she 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 knew that something else was going on and it wasn't just heartburn because nobody has heartburn every single day and nobody sleeps like maybe two hours a night. So, but she didn't know how to have that conversation. Yeah. And I was so guarded by my experience at those parties where I just had these massive walls that I now call my armor um and i wouldn't let anybody in so it affected friendships it affected my work it affected it almost ended my marriage uh almost got me fired from work and it's that's the dangers of not like not properly navigating mental health uh, Mm -hmm. or seeking the help that you need and i definitely didn't until it was very close to too late yeah um so where are you at now at least with all that because you know when you were talking about the incident, I, yeah. I could hear like some, some emotion in your voice about mm-hmm. it. So going back to it, yeah. you know, I, when I, when I give presentations or anything, um, you come to f- the finality of the story and yeah. you go, so where am I now? And it's like, you expect it to be, and you know, now I got help and it's and now Sunshine we're, and we're here. I'm talking now yeah. and everything's great. Yeah. And I'm like, well, no, the actual reality is like, it's, still a day-to-day battle yeah um you know 
I expect similar, but like where where does that leave you now? Like now you you kind of have a purpose. Um, you've you've reinvented yourself. Yeah. What are these scars like? Mental scars for you now? So, um, recovery for me now. It's we both know it's an infinite journey, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no there's no finite end. Uh, like recovery is not a one and done scenario when it comes to mental health. Um, you can you can be mentally healthy but still in recovery from a mental illness. So I've come to terms with that and just knowing that uh, every day is going to be different. And um, it's funny that you mentioned the the emotion because there's, there's days where I can tell the story start to finish, like we're talking right now. Mm-hmm. There's times where I tell the story and I get choked up at the start and then eventually it gets easier. Uh, and then there's days where I just straight up cry. And... Um, the, and it doesn't seem to matter the the situation or how I was feeling that day before the story started being told. I felt awesome coming in here. I still feel awesome. Mm-hmm. But it's there's some days where it's just really hard. And I think that it's the, um, I think at this point, it's kind of looking back at how far I've come. I think that that plays into the emotion that comes right. out in the story too. Because um, like there's still pain associated with those years and that experience like regardless of my relationship with is with my my wife or my employer now uh or the new group of friends that i have um it's still that that pain is still there and there's still a lot that i wish never happened unfortunately it did but i'm moving forward now and that's what i focus on is just that forward movement Mm -hmm. so um in terms of uh well for your question like i still Uh, I still seek counseling. I still talk. um, And I still am open with my mental health wherever I can. So I tell my story a lot at work. Mm -hmm. Um, The agency that I work for is a small uh, organization. There's 230 employees, roughly. Um, And back in June, I gave a a mental health presentation to uh, 30 senior executives, management, and administration and I told them my side of the story and what mental health looks like for an employee. And uh, I said that while you guys get those phone calls when I can't come into work, what you don't see is the potential 15, 30 hour of anxiety pacing back and forth, me wondering who's going to pick up the phone? What are they going to think? Are they mm-hmm. going to believe me? Um, is this, I start to freak out because I start wondering, like, is this how I'm going to feel again tomorrow? Am I going to need to miss multiple days because of this? Is it coming back? Um, and it really opened up their eyes. And there were some people in the room that genuinely didn't see in, seem interested. But it's going to be like that anywhere in life uh, about any topic. Yeah. Yeah. So I... I, st- I don't focus on those people as much. I focus on the people that are leaning in and that are engaged and they want they want to buy into what I'm saying and they they want to understand what this looks like for an employee because it could be their employees that are calling in sick or maybe there's something going on in these programs that um, they're not noticing because they can't recognize the signs or they don't know what it looks like. And this is an opportunity to take lived experience and share it with people that don't know what it looks like and have them understand it so when they see it next time they can start to help they can they can do something better and they can prevent somebody from getting to where i was Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what i live for now is um my recovery works best when i'm helping other people 
And I find that um, if I can lift other people up, that they'll lift me up. And I'll just keep feeling better and better. And I can help people around me while I'm doing it. Yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, like, that's a very similar thing to what happened to me. That when I found purpose in sharing my story and found that it helped, Mm -hmm. that it made the enduring it, like, enduring the, like you said, like, the the days of anxiety or those intense moments Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't, I don't want to say it made it worth it, but that. At least, like, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna come out of the other side. I'm gonna share it with somebody mm-hmm. and, like, it's gonna resonate with some people yeah. and actually make things better. And it's, it's, it took like a mental illness to, like, just give me endless amounts of empathy for other people. Like, I just find myself looking at people differently. Whereas before, if you would have asked me when I was 18, 19, 20, what I thought of people. I would have been, you know, like people are awful. People are, people are shit. And of course there's still people like that, but now it's like, okay, that person's shit, but why? Yeah. You know what, what's the why? There's obviously a reason that person's raging on the internet or Mm -hmm. yelling in traffic or yelling at the kids on the lawn. You know what I mean? Like I find myself interested in the why and what happened. And then you try to maybe find a connection on that, that level. And it's, it sucks that it, takes a something so horrific happening to get a lot of people to that point but at least it is a little bit of a blessing in in disguise i 100 percent agree and it's funny that you say that because like i said i i when when the accident happened and all those people were standing around there was uh i remember there was one person in particular that i said are you on the phone with 911 because i needed to tell them that, he, that he's not breathing anymore and the guy's like no i'm taping it like he was videoing it yeah that's big so like it was um so yeah i was at that point i was furious with people and like i still have i still have a problem going into um new scenarios like big large groups of people that are it's a new scenario to me Mm -hmm. i'm not i'm terrible at networking yeah um but i'm starting to um take off my armor and open up and like not be as guarded and really give people an opportunity but like that that did some damage and it's now that I know more about mental health and I've looked into myself and, and therapy and things like that, like you said, I can see that there's something that's caused these people to be that way. And maybe yeah. the people that weren't doing anything, maybe they already knew what was going to end up happening to me or like how that could affect me later on down the road. So I don't hold them as, as do you, accountable. Do you think that's why, like when you heard that scream that you experienced anger rather than sadness or another sort of emotion, was it because you felt that during that scenario like you were all alone trying to do everything like was that ever part of your your journey and figuring it out yes and no um okay what we ended up finding out through therapy and it's like through just like constant digging deeper Mm -hmm. and people asking questions was that by the end of that situation i hated not the people i hated myself because i thought that this was on me like i lost his life it wasn't the fact that he was in a terrible accident it was my actions that cost him his life and my delay and my inability to move him properly and things like that. So um, it was dealing with that more than dealing with the fact that nobody would help. And the approach that we took to that was kind of um, finding a way for me to come to terms with the way that that day played out. And for the people that didn't react, it was understanding that maybe that situation was too intense for them. Like at the end of the day, 
human beings are animals and we have one of two responses to danger and um, chaos, Mm -hmm. which is the fight or flight. So flight now could be standing around not doing anything. Whereas like back in the stone ages, flight is you're running away from a saber toothed tiger, but we don't have those things anymore. We have new dangers that are in suits and it's, they come in the form of machines being in accidents and things like that. So it was really understanding how the human mind works and our reaction to uh, trauma and chaos Mm -hmm. and me understanding that not everyone's going to react the same way that I did and forgiving them for that. What about like, do you still get like the nightmares of it or is like, has that pretty much tapered off for the most part? Like it's, the the nightmares of the scenario don't really come anymore it's more um i'm afraid of um uh things that are out of my control so um my kids for example like if they're uh every morning i walk my kids to the bus and the idea of them running into the street terrifies me so i overreact to them being too close to the curb like um i might yell Mm -hmm. and be like yo get back from the curb it's and and it doesn't really need to happen there's no cars there's no nothing it's just that i feel like i need to be in control of situations all the time um so that's something that i'm dealing with now Mm -hmm. is just being able to understand that there's a reason that i don't control it and to accept that type thing so yeah wow that that's a hard one to (laughs) yeah get around for sure yeah um and you know now so now you're on the other side um you're you're trying to build something and implement uh, mental health in workplaces. One of, you know, I, I just had um, Nina on and, you know, off mic, I was describing what she did and, and this the previous episode, but we were talking about what makes a workplace mental health, like look, look bad. Like what happens? What are some of the scenarios? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my biggest critiques is I feel when people you know, get thrust into a manager position for the first time, mm-hmm. it's usually based on performance. You're a high performing individual and that, you know, you have some results, whether that's on the business end, that, whether it's, you know, you, you, you're a hard worker, you do the work, whatever, positive attitude and you get put in that position. And now all of a sudden you're just in charge of a group of people, you know, you, you're learning budgets for the first time and there's never that adequate like training like mm-hmm. hey we're gonna sit you down for two weeks and you're gonna learn about people and how to react it's just kind of just like you know, like you're figure it out as long as you go and mm-hmm. if you have any questions like we're here maybe kind of i feel like that that's one of my biggest things and i know going through my mental illness journey you know my boss wasn't prepared for the things that i was dealing with mm-hmm. and when she told me i'm here if you need to talk and i talked it was just like, whoa. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, that's what like that's one of my biggest critiques. Yeah. What are some of the types of things, you know, in in what you're helping companies do, uh, part of this national standard that that you believe in mm-hmm. w- need to be implemented at least like if we're just talking a basic sense to help get this businesses on the right path? Um, so one of the biggest things that um well outside of this so there's a survey that you can take for your organization it's called uh, the guarding minds at work survey and it helps you identify the problem areas in your your organization so it's free to take um and what they do is they they launch a survey for all your employees and then 
you choose when the survey starts and when it finishes. And the moment that the survey finishes, so say that your end date is today at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as your survey finishes, they send you aggregate data that they've collected from all your employees, and it shows you how your agency's done in the 13 psychological factors for your workplace. And it shows you based on um, what are serious concerns, um, moderate concerns, um, and then your success is either moderate or complete success in the other areas. So once you've established that, um, you can really narrow in on what's wrong with your employees and where you need to improve. So when our agency did that, what we ended up doing was we chose a product that would help managers. So we, we have a problem with civility and respect and um, organizational culture. That's where we scored the lowest for mm-hmm. our organization. So civility and respect, a lot of the questions from the survey are in regards to um, whether or not other people are open to your ideas and your thoughts, how easy it is to talk to other people, how easy it is to disclose health or anything like that in your organization. So when we realized that that was a problem, we ended up choosing a product called Not Myself Today, which is again a Canadian Mental Health Association product. And they send out these um, scenario cards and you can either have an employee pack or a manager pack. And the manager pack helps you understand um, how to navigate tactfully a conversation where someone's disclosing their mental illness for the first time at work. So it prepares them for that scenario. So while uh, when you sat down, chances are they didn't have any experience doing that. So this kind of prepares them to go through those those conversations. And the scenario packs are like 10, 10 different scenarios, and they're all pretty relevant to taking pretty much any kind of level of storm that might be coming at them when they sit down and they mm-hmm. have that conversation. It also teaches them how to initiate the conversation if they believe that something might be wrong. And that could be through um, like telltale, telltale signs would be like obviously a reduction in um, productivity or um, absenteeism or presenteeism in the workplace. If they're um, starting to look a little rough or tired and like a manager can sit them down and say, hey, like how can we help? And this gets them ready for those scenarios. Um, the other thing that they have is they have a uh, disclosing mental health info sheet. So it's for employers and managers to read over. And it tells you everything that you need to know about duty to accommodate, um, the pros and cons of disclosing your mental health at work and how you should go about doing it mm-hmm. and the steps that you should follow. So if I had something like that when I was when this had happened to me or if I even had even a glimpse of that info sheet, I could have saved four years of a lot of pain. So um, we're sharing these things, these resources with these employers now because like I said at the start of the show, 42% of Canadian employers are interested in launching an, a mental health program. They just don't know how. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a that's an unfortunate and kind of scary statistic, if you think about it. I think it's a little low, in my opinion. I, um, you know what? It, that was based on, I think, 600 and something organizations nationwide. Mm-hmm. So CMHA did that survey. So that's only on 600 and so organizations. So I agree, it's probably low. Yeah. Um, reality is there's a lot more than 600 organizations that are in that, Canada. Well, I, and I hope they're interested, you know what I mean? Like, in, mm-hmm. like I don't know where a lot of corporations are at. You know, I'm very fortunate that I work for one that it is, <coughs> you know, could do more, but honestly is very good and concerned and, and willing to help and accommodate. So yeah. I'm grateful for that. You know, but I, I look at other industries and you just, 
you look at the way society's built, yeah, and it's not built to accommodate mental health at the workplace, right? Well, we had a we had a discussion uh, on the last episode about um, meritocracy. So, are you familiar with that term? No, no. So it's that we have built success in in society based on your merit. So you know that person who goes above and beyond, uh, who who works long hours for free most of the time, who, mm-hmm. you know, just, just puts a lot of effort in, they're usually the ones who get rewarded. Yes, okay. So what that does is, you know, some people are really good at that and they can handle that and it's, it's great, good for them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time, a lot of people can't handle that. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the problems of work-life balance and burnout and that... S- we've created this society because we reward that that hustle that yeah. grind that that suck it up attitude like that's mm-hmm. what gets rewarded i know a conversation i've had in the past is that if i want to be a leader i need to be uh level-headed i need to which is correct mm-hmm. but like i can't get too low and i can't get too high it has to be that Balance, and yeah. when i look at myself am i going to try absolutely but based on my mental illness like it is really difficult that that's going to be a struggle for me and i mm-hmm. i don't truly know if i ever will mm-hmm. we'll we'll have to see that's down the road but you know you're you have a perception of what a what a leader is and what success looks like and mm-hmm. that's not built on a, a a healthy work environment in my opinion a lot of the time i agree um so it's just unfortunate like I don't think we're on a sustainable system, mm-hmm. um, basically. You know, mm-hmm. hopefully there's people like you, there's people like Nina, there's people out there who are trying to make a difference and change the culture. It's going to take a long time. It is. Um, but like, like, good for you guys for fighting that battle. But it, yeah, it's it's going to be tough. It is, and it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, I just read an article today um, that the Huffington Post put out. Um, and it's about how we need to change our approach to mental health in the workplace. And it's becoming a um, like catastrophic level of health issues are coming from work-related mental health right now. Yeah. And, and costing a lot of money. It is. I, I think the last statistic that I saw was $51 billion yeah. a year. Um, and when you look at that, like, sure, that's not great for the bottom line, but that's also not great for humanity, period. So... The thing that I'm finding that, and I'm sure that you'll uh, agree with this, is that when we humanize the experience and we put a face to uh, recovery and to trauma and what can come of it, that's when we're going to see the most um, Mm -hmm. buy-in from people that have never sought help before. And when we have conversations like the one that we're having right now, or if you're doing your podcast and I know that on the 14th you're doing a thing at Invest Ottawa yeah for um yeah he manager it, yeah it's like called that. uh so it's a foundation I started working mm-hmm. with called the uh, made of millions yes so very similar uh story it, it, it really focuses on mental health at the workplace based mm-hmm. on you know they have a, a long story of their someone starting it because of workplace the the person I'm working with in Canada has an experience with mental health in the workplace and yeah. that's how it got started so this this night is based on having like a, a panel of like CEOs and, and scientists and da 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 and you, you just talk about that type of stuff. And yeah. You just 
like you said, you have that open dialogue and you're real. What are businesses doing right? What are they doing wrong? Yeah. Having employees have the chance to ask questions. Yes. Because uh, yeah. it's, it's complicated and, you know, people people are scared to talk about it still. Even I yeah. am. I'm super open about it all the time, but there's certain things I still don't disclose. Yes. Because I'm afraid of what the reaction might be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I 100% agree, but the the fact that you're doing that and that you're sharing your story and we have things like um, weareunsinkable.com and Sick Not Week, the more that people are sharing their stories on platforms like that, I really believe that we'll start seeing more buy-in from the people that haven't sought out help before. And mm -hmm. that includes um, CEOs and management that have never experienced mental health before, don't understand it, see it as a costly thing in their workplace. But I think that when we stand up and show the successes or show the change that can come from being supported in the workplace with your mental health, I think that that's when we're going to see more um, people changing their minds and implementing programs and things like that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I 100% agree that it's going to be a long journey. Um, but I think that just remaining consistent and pushing towards a goal that might be bigger than us right now. But later on down the line like maybe we won't see that change in our generation like by the time that we retire but if we can make an impact in our time that we're here and we're working towards it then that's what i'm focused on yeah. right now more than anything is yeah. just bringing that change and i have an opportunity to do it i've been given the opportunity to do it for my organization and um i'm hoping that um by doing things like sitting down with you um i have an opportunity to get more invitations to come in because I don't charge for this. Like this is something that I will sit down and I will go on Skype after work mm -hmm. and I will explain to you how to, from start to finish, implement the, the national standard in your organization. And if you need help, reach out. It's, uh, it's not something that I feel I can put a price on right now because I feel that I owe too much to myself and too much to other people to be charging for this right now. And um, I just want to help and I want other people to just better their work environment for their employees because like, like I said a few times now, I work in disability services. So every day I get to help somebody that without my help wouldn't be able to leave the mark that they want to leave in this world. They're not physically capable of doing it. And if I'm not at my absolute best, I might not be able to get them to that point like I might not be able to take them to what they want to see or do what they want to do because I'm too worried about myself or I'm too upset with myself and I just don't have the motivation or I don't know where to start and I don't want to get on the computer and do hard work because I feel so crappy mm -hmm. um, if we could prevent that from happening and just help more people and help the people that are in service to others that provide services to others like I want I just want everyone to not be the guy in traffic yelling, like you said earlier, yeah, or like yeah. the guy on the internet leaving. Well, that's shitty that, that's the big one for me right now. Is how do you end the, the trolling and the yeah. negative behavior on on social media? Like that's that's going to be a big focus soon because it, that's detrimental to a lot of people. It's funny that you, because um, I've I obviously listened to your show. I'm a fan of the show, um, which is how we connected you, in the yeah. first place. But um, I've I've heard you mention it a few times in episodes like the comment threads and you have a hard time with them yeah and yeah. uh i've just started noticing um thankfully it's not on my content i'm not big enough yet but it's like i'm still just getting started but i'm i'm noticing on um 
I think there's an app called BetterHelp. Um, they advertise frequently on Facebook and Instagram and things like that. They come up all the time. They're a, um, they're a counseling service that you can access through an app. And the amount of negative comments um, supersedes their moderator's ability to get rid of it because I'm sure their marketing platform is they go nationally instead of just narrowing it down mm -hmm. to just the Ottawa area. So they're getting people from all over. But the amount of disrespect to the type of service that they're providing and um, just downplaying people's needs for the service that doesn't get addressed in time is detrimental to people seeking help. So if you post something about mental health on your social media and somebody gets to it before you have a chance to moderate the comments or I don't even know if you do that or not with your own content, but say someone goes on and leaves a super shitty comment about how um, like man up, you're being a little bitch or whatever mm -hmm. and um, other people see that, that might prevent them from seeking actual help because they don't want to be perceived as that as well. Mm -hmm. Or the one that, um, that I've heard you guys talk about before too is that people saying that you're seeking attention or yeah, all you're looking for is attention. That's a big one. That's a super shitty way to talk to anybody about mental health and I don't think that anybody that is brave enough to disclose their story or disclose their mental health on a public platform should ever have anybody say that they're seeking attention um but on the flip side i if i'm telling my story and someone thinks that i'm seeking attention moving forward like if i see that in a comment i'll say absolutely i am because the more that you look at it and the more that you look at me the more you start thinking about mental health in the right light mm -hmm. and maybe maybe that response is all i need but i don't at the same time, you don't want to be battling back and forth with trolls, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, You need to... So. I, I'm, in a, I'm in a weird spot in my thought process because I'm a, very much a believer in uh, freedom of speech. Yeah. So the answer is no, I don't moderate any comments. Thankfully, mm -hmm. I'm not big enough yet at this point. Yeah. Maybe, you know, some listening to this in a couple of years is going to look back and be like, you're big enough now. And yeah. You know, that's the hope, right? <laughs> um, you know, leaving them, but you got to leave that... You know, I think that, that would be a really good response. Absolutely, I am. Yeah. Uh, and just leave it at that, and then you you walk away from it. Yeah. The majority of people will look at that and be like, like, you won. That was your clapback, whatever the yeah. generation uses now. But yeah. <laughs> that, like, most people recognize, like, you're right that someone could be deterred from it. Mm -hmm. But the majority of people, I think, recognize that's just a, a troll, a shitty comment a shitty person why is that person com again going back to our thought process why is that person commenting that well chances are they're probably going through something they're feeling weak they're insecure mm -hmm. you know who knows it's unfortunate that they feel the need that's how i've actually started to think about answering people when they have cr a, not a valid criticism you know like one of those shitty comments they're like just that. taking jabs it's like yeah it's like it's unfortunate you think that way um you know spread love yeah. Whatever. Some a comment like that where you've acknowledged it, but like you basically shut it down. It's not open for debate. Yeah. Um. But you know, one of the unfortunate things about everything, uh, in in terms of content or media or whatever it is, that you really aren't making a meaning. Well, you haven't made it unless you're receiving negative feedback. Yeah. Right. That. Like yeah. that's that's one of the big things. If yeah. you're not getting criticized, you're you know you're not. 
if someone doesn't hate you, you haven't made it yet. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're, you know, I'm not, I, I wanted to say you're not doing something meaningful unless someone criticizes you, which is not true, mm -hmm. but along that idea that like people criticize people doing meaningful things because whatever the reasons are, I don't know. They're, they're again, insecure. They're, they're feeling like, you know, they thought of that idea and they didn't act on it. Now they see this person doing it and they're like, yeah, fuck that person. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It, you know what? Like, there's 7 billion people in this world. You know, uh, a good comment I've always said is you get a uh, 100 people in a room, you're at least one of them is going to be a piece of shit. Like, yeah. like you, yeah. you can't fix that. People <clears throat> will always be like that. Mm -hmm. But I like your thought. Like, you got to focus on on the positive, on, on, you know, your mission. It's like, you know what? You think that way. That's unfortunate for you. I, I hope you see the, the light. Yeah. I'm going to continue on because you know there is a lot of value that people have in in normalizing these types of conversations you know mm -hmm. that just you opening up about you know you might not have to get into all the nitty gritties but but just having a general sense of of what you're feeling mm -hmm. you know someone res it resonates with people they go Fuck, like i feel that way too like maybe i should go seek help like i get those thoughts i get anxiety yeah you know like talking about what a panic attack feels like or talking about the, the depression feels like or, or um the anger that you were feeling you know what i mean like yeah people i spent like i know when i was going through it i didn't recognize that as something i needed to talk about i was just like oh like i'm feeling i didn't even know it was anxiety i'm just like oh like i don't want to do this thing mm -hmm. not recognizing anything beyond that until you you start hearing more about it um you get you know sick not weak or yeah sick not weak and bellet's talk day and yeah that was really kind of the, the start of it mm. and now you get yeah you, you got all these platforms and you get people like us talking and you you have more events and you have more the campaigns and ad campaigns and, and apps and all this stuff it, it's it's growing and but we need to remember that also this really only started four years ago at the time like we're 2019 now like yeah. 2015 is when i remember it actually having an an effect on the on the world around me mm -hmm. before that i don't remember anyone really talking about it and that could have just been in my circle yeah and you know who i followed on social media or whatever but it was <clears throat> it, it wasn't a normal topic unless you talked about it directly with like your parent or your doctor yeah someone in that like yeah. it just wasn't a it wasn't a topic around normal everyday life yeah it's true and it's uh i think around that time was when um movember had switched from just being yeah cancer to somewhere around there men's too, yeah. overall health or like mental health they were including that as yeah. well so it's um whatever the shift was i'm thankful for it mm -hmm. because like i said it's uh um the more people that stand up and have these conversations the more people that we can help mm -hmm. and that's all we're looking to do at this point yeah the, the more i'm thinking about it i'm like i'm looking into like peer support type Yep. things yeah um you know i had michael dixon on and um i'm not sure if you listened to that episode funeral but, director yeah right? exactly yeah. and they started the first canadian peer mm -hmm. support network because you know all the shit they deal with and there was no there was no help yeah but i think of it as you know what if there were people like you and i and and people who who suffered from you know mental health disorder mental illness whatever mm. and you just get together and you, you kind of just you normalize it like you have conversations and you, you kind of make light of it in a way that like you just you beat you beat it by being like oh yeah like i get nervous about going out to do this thing too it's so stupid and you're yeah. like oh yeah me too and 
you, you almost just like push it down like oh yeah it's just you know it, it is a big thing but it isn't like we all deal with this and it just kind of gives that sense of like a community around it and absolutely i've been thinking about that idea recently i'm like i hmm, wonder if that because that, that, i don't know if there is things like out that there's some like i know that there's um first responders have a lot of peer support systems in place as they uh, should but yeah. like for normal day people you yeah. know just regular day government work or whatever you do you and i yeah, yeah. like just it's almost like i don't i don't want it when i think of it i don't want it to be like a, a clinical setting where you have a doctor and you're yeah you're taught it's just like literally people with some sort of like just with a mental illness and you're just getting together with other people like that and you're just you're just talking about your experiences and ma- making small talk and recovery what yeah. do you do what do you do one yeah. of my favorite things to ask is like you know and i'll ask the question like what do you do on like a day-to-day maintenance level uh for it you know like you know i, I like i need to hit the gym beforehand like that's why mm-hmm. i said i gotta get here at a certain time because i i need to work out before this or I'm, I'm gonna be off yeah yeah um you know it's a big thing fixing my diet the social circles all that stuff mm-hmm. but what are some things you do like meditation do you try any of that yoga so funny enough i have wanted to try meditation forever i'm in the same boat and i like i've downloaded the apps i have calm i have uh, headspace and stuff like that and i've just never gotten to it and i don't know why i'm interested but i i'm like you're like that's exactly me and i'll ask people about oh like how do you meditate no they'll tell me all about it and i'm like okay I hear so many great things I'm going to do and I'm just like, I never get, yeah, get onto it. I don't know what it is, but there's something about it that I just, I've never been able to really invest it. So, mm-hmm. um, a day for, so you're asking what a day looks like for me in terms of. Just in, like, what do you do? What are some maybe routines or th- things you do daily or, or weekly to, to just that mental health maintenance, making sure you're, you're right. Yeah. So the first thing that I do every single day is I make my bed. And I'll get to that in a, in a second as to why I do that. Um, but I make my bed and I work alternating shift work. So my, my day changes based okay. on what my, my routine or my routine shifts based on my rotation at work. But every day uh, I get to the gym, I get outside if I can, uh, I'll go for a hike or I'll go for a walk or whatever. Um, being outside is a big part of recovery for me and just feeling better. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I go to work, I come home and I have a, um, I spend some time with my wife and my kids. And then I also have some time where it's just me to decompress. Cause like I said, I have a job, which unfortunately can be loud and very taxing mentally mm-hmm. on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a uh, time where I just decompress and I, uh, I play board games that are designed for one player. Oh, so, um, it's a way for me to have alone time escape reality and still use my brain mm-hmm. uh, i'm not a big fan of sitting down in front of a tv and um especially if the day's been hard and uh watching really anything uh sometimes i just want silence so uh i do that and i i think about uh whatever the task at hand that i'm doing and whatever game that it is that i'm playing so um that's what that is but uh the reason why i make my bed was that um there's this uh, Navy Admiral, um, whose name is William McRaven, I believe his name is, and he gave this speech about how oh, the way to successfully start and end your day is to have the first thing that you ever do every single morning is to make your bed. And the reason is, is because by the time you're done making your bed, you've already completed the first task of the day, you're ready to complete the next. Mm-hmm. So you're just focusing on, you can have long-term goals, but focus on the steps um, and small, small steps mm-hmm. to get to those long-term goals. 
And that's how you can define success at the end of your day, regardless if it went good or not. So I'll make my bed, I'll go and I'll complete my, my next tasks. Uh, I might make some advancement on spreading my message on social media or um, sitting down with you. Like I consider this a success just to be able to sit down in a room and talk mental health with you. Um, but for those days that are shit and nothing goes right, it's a hard day at work. At least when I get home, there's a bed that's made, it's waiting for me. And it's, it showed me that I did something. To yeah. There was one thing that I did right at the start of the day. And that bed now looks like a second chance. I can go to bed and tomorrow I can try again. Yeah. And I'm, just repeat that process. I didn't know who said it, but I, I remember hearing that too. So I adopted the same thing. And you just get in that mindset of, of you're right. You just, you, you've completed one task. Yeah. So the day wasn't a complete failure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something I do too. It's, it, and I, I have like, a, I make my, I eat my breakfast and have my coffee or I do the same things. Mm -hmm. Just some things that like, if things go a little off, it's like you kind of have like a, just a little bit of a guide map just to keep you on track. Like, okay, yeah. like I just do these things and at least, yeah. you know, just fit in my day. But yeah, yeah, uh, I'm always interested to hear what like other people are doing. If it's similar or like, can I pick something else new up? Like I know I talked to Michael and I talked to Sabrina and they're like, they meditate an hour a day. I'm like, Whoa, yeah. like, how do you, how do you get into that? But, they I do mean, and it works for them and I would love to be able to do that and but uh at the at the at the start it's like it's daunting it's like oh my god an hour a day yeah i i don't even i know that uh headspace has like a 10 minute introduction one yeah. i remember being like a couple minutes into it and i had to get up with one of the kids and it's just like i never got back to it because mm -hmm. i felt mm -hmm. i couldn't but and that's um, what that when you get kids and you get people relying that's where it really kind of starts to throw it all it's yeah. easy for me i'm i'm single like i can i don't have to i get up at the same time don't have to worry about anything really disrupting it yeah but yeah when you start throwing in kids that's where yeah yeah you know how am i gonna get to the gym i gotta pick up you know yeah drop them off at school and they got an appointment like, oh, where am i gonna fit time to work out and, and yeah. go for a walk or whatever like it's where it gets tricky. Yeah. Um, so it's the best advice that I can give to people that are finding it difficult to do something like that is that um, focus on like mastering your day as opposed to like setting these goals. Like I want to lose 40 pounds uh, in three months. That's my goal. That's cool. But like focus on just getting to the gym every single day and focus on that and take it a day at a time because that's what recovery is. Yeah. And if you can find a way to be successful, um, frequently in a single day that's better than setting these long-term goals and like having days where you feel like you completely offshot it and or a couple of days where you feel like you're not getting towards your goals like just focus on day to day and slow everything down if you can even with kids it's possible like mm -hmm. I still get to the gym I still get uh out for my walks I still am able to have that decompressing time when I get home where it's just me so it's uh it's possible it's just it gets trickier but it's, yeah you can definitely sit down and figure it out Perfect. Um, listen, man, hell of a story. Thank you for coming in and sharing it. Yeah, thanks for that's, giving uh, me a platform to share. <laughs> that's, it's something I think there's a lot of things people can, can take away from it because, you know, it, it's always unfortunate that people kind of have to reach that bottom mm -hmm. to get that rise and kind of come out on the other side with sort of like an inspirational story. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's people like you that are that are – working hard on their own time, no money associated with it. Just not like just completely selfless to changing the world. Like that's, 
need more people like that. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And I appreciate what you do, too, because um, one of my favorite quotes right now is that for sometimes when people are really, really down, um, courage doesn't come easy for them. And it takes courage to get out and seek help. So sometimes encouragement from the outside is what builds courage in people. So mm. if we keep doing what we're doing, hopefully we can encourage people to become courageous enough to seek the help that they need and be the change that they want to see. And you'll have more people lining up to do interviews with stories just as good or even better than mine. Mm. Uh, that's great, but also not great. I just always say, you know, people, it's great people have these stories and they're very interesting, compelling and, and emotional. And it's like, it's, it just, it's always one of those things where you're like, ah, I hate that. Like you have that story to tell at the same time, yeah. right? Like I'd rather everyone kind of just be regular in, in a be way okay. where, yeah, yeah, you know, like not have that, that sad yeah. story where it changes things but unfortunately i guess that's human life right so yeah yeah we do what we can um if people want to find more information on on you know what you're offering on on these on these services like mm -hmm. if they want to get in contact with you for more information how do, how do they do that um so the best way to contact me would be um i have you can find me on social media uh under i am stoutheart um that's both on twitter and instagram and then you can look me up on LinkedIn as well um, at just under Greg Swain. I think I'm the only one in the world <laughs> with, that spells it with an E at the end. So that's uh, that's how you can find me. And then um, our story is going to be shared uh, continuously through um, weareunsinkable.com. And I think that that's getting published um, in early November, I want to say. But it's um, it's like what we covered today, but it also goes through all the steps on how we built the program, like this mental health program. Um, using products through the Canadian Mental Health Association, which are all free. Mm -hmm. And we coach people on how they can implement them uh, in their, their organizations. And we kind of break it down into previews and we talk about how our, our organization, um, the trials and errors that we went through. So it's designed specifically, that content is going to be designed specifically to help organizations build their own oh, that's mental great. health systems. I have, a, I have a story coming out. I don't know when it's coming out, but I wrote something for them. So Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So that's great. It's in the, it's in the, the queue. So awesome. that's an interesting one, too, uh, yeah. that just kind of came out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, cool, and started reading into it. And yeah, it's new as of April this year. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure we'll catch up down the road for sure. Absolutely, man. Greg Swain, ladies and gentlemen. Bye. <laughs> Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.